0: All right, good morning. So our topic today is whatever happened to an eye for an eye? And uh, Jason, who is so good at coming up with pictures for the bulletin, uh, picked out uh, a scene from the movie Anchorman, and I'd like to start with a short clip that uh, gives you the context for that quote. That escalated quickly. I mean, that really got out of hand fast. It jumped up a notch. It did, didn't it? Yeah, I stabbed a man in the heart. I saw that. Brick killed a guy. Did you throw a trident? Yeah, there were horses and a man on fire, and I killed a guy with a trident. Brick, I've been meaning to talk to you about that. You should find yourself a safe house or a relative close by. Lay low for a while, because you're probably wanted for murder. Escalation, you know, what started off as competition in Anchorman among a couple of different stations wound up being a scene where there was a parody of a 1950s type of rumble between gangs in the street. And they were reminiscing over their accomplishments in that that rumble there. So escalation. Mark, we go back to the... uh Escalation. Talk about escalation. The Hatfields and the McCoys. I certainly would think they would have felt comfortable with us today with that song that we sang uh, that seems like it came right out of the mountains of Kentucky and West Virginia. But the Hatfields and the McCoys, a legendary, bitter family feud. In fact, the game show Family Feud Was actually based on the legend, well, not the legend, the history of the Hatfields and the McCoys. And interestingly, a few years ago, there was a Hatfield McCoy reunion where one of the things they did was they opposed one another on the game show Family Feud. But the McCoys were of Scottish ancestry and they lived on the Kentucky side of the Tug Fork. And they were led by the gentleman on the right, Randolph McCoy. The Hatfields were of English ancestry and they lived on the West Virginia side across the Tug Fork from the McCoys and they were led by Devil Anse Hatfield. Now the feud lasted from 1863 To 1891. And some people would say that the first thing that happened in the feud was that one of the McCoys, who was the only one of the Hatfields and the McCoys to fight for the Union Army, broke his leg in the Civil War and was sent back home. And when he got back home, the Hatfields thought because of his treason, he should be eliminated, uh, but the McCoys agreed with him, and eventually he was. So that really wasn't the beginning of the feud between the Hatfields and the McCoys. It actually started about eight years later, but the history of this feud had everything that makes for great television. There was betrayal, treason, larceny, there was a teen pregnancy, lawsuits, witness intimidation, intermarriage between the uh, families, bitter divorces, crooked jurisprudence, labor strife, mayhem, but mostly there was murder. And it was murder in the name of justice, family honor, and revenge. The death toll over the period of the feud was 12 lives between these two families, only one of which was a legitimate uh, um, death due to a jurisprudence, a decision that someone should die. The other 11 deaths were all through murder. So why can something like that escalate? And by the way, both both of those families would have claimed to have been Christian. Why does something like that escalate? Well, we have a God-implanted sense and desire to have justice and to see justice. It's part of what God has designed for beautiful life under him. But our sin nature distorts our ability to figure out what really is just recompense for something, and particularly when it's a slight or a harm to us. So because of that, we don't just want to get even, we want revenge. We see that in international affairs, we see it in national and local politics, We see it in marketplace competition, we see it in competitive sports, in academic power struggles, right Jason? We see it in gang wars, even in jails. But we also see it where we work, we see it in our own families, we see it in our own households, we see it in our marriages. And if we 're real honest, where we really see it is in our own hearts. But stop the guilt trip, Rick. The Bible says an eye for an eye," right? Well, it does. Yeah Mark's put up the, the passages there. There are actually three places in the, uh, in Torah where this concept of eye for an eye comes out. In Exodus 21, 23 through 25, it says, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now that sounds kind of bombar- bomb barbaric to our modern ears. But it's repeated in Leviticus 24, 19, 20. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done it, shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. And then finally in Deuteronomy nineteen, twenty-one. It says, your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So it's pretty clear that the Bible says eye for eye. It certainly would seem like justice gives us the right to get even. But if we look at today's verse... There seems to be a conflict in the Bible. Romans 12, 17 through 21, English Standard Version, says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, Never avenge yourself. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So Paul isn't just saying, don't repay. He's saying, feed your enemy, quench their thirst. So it sure seems to me that's not an eye for an eye. How might we be able to reconcile this? I mean, it seems like there are two completely different principles being stated. Well, one way to reconcile it would be to say, the eye for eye stuff, that's the Old Testament. And the Old Testament no longer applies to us because there's a new covenant of grace and that obliterates the law. Well, that'd be one way to reconcile it. But that's not our understanding. As Jason says, that's not the way we roll around here. In fact, we did, I think it was two years in the book of Ezekiel, or was it three? Okay. 43 weeks. Oh, But we did a whole year on Torah. And somewhere in the four years that we're doing Roman here, Jason dispelled the notion that Paul is saying in Romans that the law no longer matters. So really, that can't reconcile these two seemingly disparate biblical principles. Well, let's take a little closer look at Torah. A couple of weeks ago, as Jason was setting the context for Romans, and particularly as we were moving into Romans 12, He said God's people are rescued out of slavery and he gives them Torah so that they may know how to live well. He said the Exodus is preparatory to entering the land by conquest led by God, not of their own power. So you see, in Torah, God was doing nation-building work. Because God's chosen covenant people were going to have to set up a nation, a group of people, in a geography, a land. And so they had to establish a way to govern. And we know that God's vision for them was that they would live lives that would show the blessing of God so that they could be a blessing to others. So in Torah, God's not just giving the Israelites a personal blueprint for piety, but he wants his people to be a blessing, so he's telling them how to create and how to function a just society. Now, there's a little bit of an ancient historical perspective, too, to this whole concept of an eye for eye. Believe it or not, I know most people think that the oldest profession in the world is prostitution, but I think it's actually lawyers chasing ambulances. Because historians believe that the concept of establishing a monetary value for a wrong actually predates societies that are overrun with an excess amount of lawyers chasing ambulances. They've actually unearthed legal materials that existed in the ancient Near East prior to the ancient Mesopotamian code of Hammurabi. in in those pre-hammurabi code laws it legislated financial or economic compensation for bodily injuries cuz wrongs were seen as personal matters to be settled personally they weren't crimes against society well into that kind of civilization the code of hammurabi comes and seems to be the first that developed a sense of not having a purely economic equivalency for claims wrongs under that code were not considered to be personal matters but they were actually a harm to society as well But in that code, the Hammurabi Code, the idea that there should be an equivalency for a wrong that was done and that society should enforce it only applied if the harm was done to people who were of a privileged state. It didn't apply to the masses. But Torah comes along, and extends what's called the law of equivalency, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, to anyone in society who is harmed. And harming another is seen as an offense against the covenant community, and thus against the God of the covenant. So this concept of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth a life for a life, is best understood as setting a standard for how a just society should handle wrongs that are perpetrated on citizens. So look at the justice of Torah. Torah extends what's called the law of equivalency to anyone who's harmed. Harming another is an offense against the covenant community and thus against the God of the covenant. So it established a rule of jurisprudence that the punishment should fit the crime. You've heard that used in modern jurisprudence. Well, that's the first place in history that that concept appeared. So it's best understood that this principle is a standard for how the covenant community should handle punishing people for wrongs against the covenant community and thus against God. It's as much a limitation on punishment as it is a legitimization of punishment. But most importantly, it is absolutely not a legitimization a legitimization of personal revenge. God did not want escalation to be the norm among his covenant community. Can we trust that as an understanding? I say absolutely, and here's why. Mark, if you'd go to the next slide. You know why? Because Jesus says so. What clearly balances out that there is no conflict here comes from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, 38-42, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Sounds a little bit about like, Don't return evil for evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. sure seems to me like Paul was really trying to phrase Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in different words here, but getting the same principle apart. In fact, I think there are ways that we could look at Romans 12 as Paul's Sermon on the Mount. Paul is reiterating the standards for kingdom living, which is what the Sermon on the Mount was. And those, ser- those standards are very countercultural, and they require us to challenge our own natural selfish tendencies. In fact, a little bit earlier in Romans 12.3, Paul said, For by the grace given to me, I say to every man, every one among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of the faith that God has assigned. Paul's message in Romans 12 is about how we are to live in harmony with one another in God's new covenant community, the church. And it's not the only place that Paul beats that drum. He does it in Ephesians 4 and 5, where he talks about living in unity with one another. And he concludes it with one of my favorite verses in 520, where he says, and submit yourself to one another out of reverence Christ. He doesn't say submit to one another, be selfish, be selfless out of your own willpower. He says do it out of reverence for Christ. And then there's the great verses in Philippians 2 where Paul says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, only to look out for your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, By becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, here's how I would conclude what I've learned from this passage and looking at it in the context of the apparent conflict with Torah. What God gave the covenant community in Israel in the law is what Jesus gave to those who desire to follow him in the kingdom, and what Paul gave the Romans and the Philippians, and the Ephesians, and ultimately to us as the New Covenant community. What each gave is very consistent. Live well, live in harmony, live for others, but do it by God's power, not your own. Amen. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for every jot and tittle of your word. Lord, we know that you are infallibly consistent, and we are so far short of that. But we thank you, Lord, that you became man and lived a life and taught us in a way that we would know how to live well, that we would be a community that radiates your blessings out of our community and to the whole world, that we might be a blessing to them. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.